Father, we just thank you for that. We thank you, Lord. We worship you. We just pause before you and we trust that your presence is here with us today. God, thank you. Thank you for you being our provider. All that we need. Lord, we glorify you today and we praise you for this opportunity not only to worship, but to now hear from your word. Lord, after that song, just please help me not to mess it up. God, thank you so much. We just praise you and we, uh, we give you glory today. And now may we hear your uh, power come forth in the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm serious. I don't want to mess it up after that song. <laughs> oh, whew. Well, Brian's been talking about the gospel. He said uh, from his walk a few weeks ago at the start of this year that he wanted to make this year about the gospel. And so I want to take a pause from Galatians as he's been preaching through the gospel in Galatians and our identity so far in Christ. And I just want to pause and talk about a different aspect of the gospel. I actually told Brian that I'd be talking about suffering in the gospel. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, I had a change of course. So you're off the hook today. Maybe the next time he asks me to come back, I can talk about suffering. But today, I want to talk about the power of the gospel. The absolute power of the gospel in each of our lives and how the power of the gospel should move us to take greater and greater steps of faith as we grow in our walk with him and as we grow in our understanding of that power. So that's where we're going today. Well, I want to tell you the story, a true story about a man named Prince Kabu. He was born in 1873 in Western Africa, possibly Guinea, possibly the Ivory Coast. But he was the son of a tribal chief. And Prince Kabu, at the age of, I think, 11 for the first time, maybe even younger, was taken captive by an enemy tribe in a war he was given uh, as a pawn, as his father's tribe had suffered defeat, Prince Kabu, Prince Kabu was given into captivity. He was returned, and once again, his father's tribe suffered defeat, and he was sent into captivity again, this time for many years. And he suffered unspeakable, unspeakable things. He was subjected to great torture in his time in captivity. So much so that he would never talk about it the rest of his life in that period of a few years when he was in torture. But I want to read a quote to you about Kabu and the dramatic way that God showed up in power in his life to rescue him and to begin to move into his life. As Kabu uh, was preparing for a final beating before the enemy tribe, all hope as well as physical strength left him. He longed only for the boon of death. Then suddenly, something very strange happened. A great light, like a flash of lightning, broke over him. The light blinded all about him. An audible voice that seemed to come from above commanded him to rise and flee. So Kabu fled over a great distance, over the course of many weeks. He called that his deliverance day for the rest of his life. And for the rest of his life, he commemorated that day by fasting every Friday, because it happened on a Friday. He fled a great distance and actually made his way to the country of Liberia on the coast of Africa, where he came to a plantation, uh, one of the very few places in that region of Western Africa where he would have been safe in the 1880s. 
and he was brought into uh, safety and he was taken in uh, and he had the opportunity to come into contact with a Christian missionary named Miss Knowles. So I want to pause the story there and we'll pick it back up later. But today, as I said, I want to talk about the power of the gospel. There's a very similar story in chapter uh, 10 of Acts, the story of Cornelius. And if you're a seeker today or a skeptic today, I want you to listen to this story because Cornelius gets a supernatural vision of the gospel in Acts chapter 10. Let me read it to you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continuously to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision the angel of the God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So I want to talk about who Cornelius is first. But to understand Cornelius, I want to go back one chapter. And there was another vision that Paul received. Paul, an enemy of the gospel, one who was persecuting Christians, one who was on the road to Damascus to go find Christians in that city, to root them out, throw them to prison, and hopefully have them killed. A murderer, an enemy of Jesus. And Paul, in Acts chapter 9, is converted on the road to Damascus. Most of you probably know that story. But this story is lesser known because of who Cornelius was. He's a lesser known biblical figure. But in Acts chapter 10, it's an equally significant story of what happens in a way that God intervenes in an equally supernatural way. Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man. He was a wealthy centurion. He was generous in his giving. And he was a man of prayer. He was in prayer when this angel of the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, go send people to find Peter. So if you look at who Cornelius was, Cornelius was a good man. He's the exact contrast of Paul, who was actually a very bad man at the time, persecuting Christians. Cornelius was actually seeking He was actually doing things that were moving him towards the Lord. But keep in mind that that did not save him. As Brian's been talking about through Galatians, it's not the goodness of Cornelius that saved him. There's two ways you can look at goodness. You can say, I'm good. And that sort of attitude about goodness is rooted in pride. It's saying that I'm good. I have it all together. And I think my goodness will somehow make me acceptable to God. That's not Cornelius. There's also a goodness that says, I'm good, but I know there's got to be something more. 
And I think that's where Cornelius was. This longing for God had entered his heart. I think the spirit of God was beginning to draw him. He was curious. He was praying. He was devout. He was giving. He was moving, but he was still hungry for more. And think about what happened. That did not save him. God sent an angel to him so that he would send people to Peter so that Peter could then come and give him the fullness of the gospel account. And that is the supernatural vision that appears to Cornelius at this moment. But there's one other contrast between Paul and Cornelius. Paul, the conversion story in chapter 9 of Acts, is a Jewish leader. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a Gentile. And that's what makes this account so significant. Because at the beginning of the gospel, here in the book of Acts, the power of the gospel is displayed, number one, by God going and rescuing Paul on the road to Damascus and rescuing a Jewish leader. And I think that's meant to illustrate the power of grace, like Brian has been talking about over the last couple of weeks. The power of grace to transform someone who is rooted and entrenched in legalism and legalistic training like Paul was. The contrast here is that now, as a direct implication of the gospel, not only is Paul saved, but the Holy Spirit shows up and begins to save a Gentile as well. Someone who is outside the fold of Judaism. This is a watershed moment for the Christian church. And we'll read about that more in the verses to come. So Cornelius sees this supernatural vision. And I want you to think about one thing. It says when he saw that vision, he stared at the angel in terror. How many of us, when we are seeking, came to that moment when we knew God was calling us, but we just stared in terror? There is that moment of fear because what God is asking us to do is come to him and surrender. And that is a scary moment. It's like standing on the edge of a cliff and God saying, jump. Maybe some of you came this morning and you're in that period, that place of your life. Maybe you're listening to worship, staring at Cormac, staring in terror because you know God is speaking to you through the worship. Cornelius stared in terror at the angel. But here's the principle. God is in the business of supernaturally saving people's lives. And even in his terror, God came to Cornelius and said, I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. And I got to tell you, I've been in full-time ministry now for 15 years, the last 10 years on campuses, and I have seen the power of the gospel over and over and over and over and over reach into people's lives and transform them from the inside out. Time and time again, as young people begin asking questions and seek the Lord, they come face to face with the gospel and the power of the gospel is absolutely transforming to them. So when you think about another thing that we can stare at God and terror at, and that being to actually share the gospel or to communicate it with someone around us, sometimes that can be a scary thought, but it is not something you have to do in and of your own strength. 
It's not even something you have to try to be persuasive in. The power of the gospel is sufficient. So if we are faithful to proclaim the gospel and what it is, the gospel will work. The Holy Spirit will work through the gospel. God is in the business of bringing people from death to life. Well, this is what happened with Prince Kabu. Back to his story. He arrived in Liberia and he came under the training of Miss Knowles in Monrovia, Liberia. And she faithfully led him to faith in Jesus. And it wasn't long until Kabu began expressing a desire to take the gospel back to his tribe. It was a very instant sort of transition, a very natural transition for him. By the way, uh, she, as a part of his Christian conversion, gave him the name of Samuel Morris. And so from now on, I'll refer to Prince Kabu as Sammy or Samuel Morris. Um, but as Sammy expressed the desire to take the gospel back to his tribe, he was also encouraged to potentially go get an education in the United States so that he would be more prepared to be a minister of the gospel. He came under the training of a second missionary, a woman named Miss Lizzie McNeil. And she emphasized the importance of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. And this is what happened next. When Sammy first understood that this spirit works here on earth and is an actual living person, he had no words adequate to express his wonderment and happiness. He found it easy to attribute the mysterious voice that had led to his escape to God's spirit who spoke to him. He came so often to visit the missionaries and asked so many hard questions about the spirit that one was finally compelled to confess, I have told you everything I know about the Holy Ghost. That's 1880s language right there. But he persisted. Who told you what you know about the Holy Ghost? She replied that she owed most of her understanding of this subject to a man named Stephen Merritt. Samuel Morris then asked, where is Stephen Merritt? The missionary replied, in New York. Samuel Morris promptly declared, I will go to see him. So this began a journey of faith for Samuel Morris. A journey in which he was wholly surrendered to the Lord and utterly faithful to what God was calling him to do, willing to step out on faith to take a journey from the coast of Liberia to New York City by himself, a journey that in those days would have been incredibly dangerous and perilous. And he takes this step of faith radically to go from Western Africa to New York City, where he found Stephen Merritt, who then, as a part of investing in his life, made arrangements for him to go to college at a place called Taylor University in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so this faith journey is the journey that Samuel Morris embarked on. And he arrived at Taylor University in the year, the school year of 1891 and 1892. And I want you just to think about the faith that it took Samuel Morris to do this. The utter faith that, that it took. This is only 26 years after the abolition of slavery in the United States. When 26 years prior, it would have been slave ships taking African slaves from the coast of West Africa to the United States. And here Samuel Morris, as a man of faith, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, I will step out and go 
And, and he spent five months on a boat uh, as, a, as just a, 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 a cargo worker on a ship to get to America so that he could be prepared to be a minister of the gospel to the people of his own country. So when he arrived, Sammy Morris's faith began to absolutely and radically impact the entire city of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the entire community of the university that he attended, Taylor University. And this is what begins to happen as well in our story of Cornelius. God calls Peter to a very similar step of faith. Look what happens next. Verses 9 through 16. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And the very next verse says, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed. And I want to pause there. This is a radical call to Peter. God says, rise, kill, and eat, which for a Jewish man to Peter would have been against the Jewish law. Something that he had adhered to his entire life. God is saying, do this. Step over this boundary, rise, kill, and eat, because what I have made clean do not call common. But Peter, right now, is inwardly perplexed. And think about it. How many of you, when a radical call from the Lord has come to you, you stare at that radical call, inwardly perplexed about God would have, what God would have you do? I remember uh, when I was in seminary, a man named Miguel Castillo, uh, a brother from Mexico, Uh, I had met him on my visit to Dallas Seminary, and Miguel then had met me and uh, had kind of taken a liking to me, and I took a liking to him. He was just an encouraging, godly man, and I was drawn to him. And when I came as a student, we began to develop a friendship, and he began to disciple me while I was at Dallas Seminary. And one day, Miguel came and told me that there was a mission trip to Spain, and then Uh, from there, uh, a Billy Graham conference in Amsterdam that he would like me to consider attending with him. And so I said, well, sure, I'll think about it. I'll pray about it. And the very next day I ran into Miguel. He said, oh, hey, by the way, I signed you up on faith for that mission trip. (laughs) I was inwardly perplexed. (laughs) And so being the the good uh, mentee that I was, I said I would go. Uh, But what that did for me was it caused me to take a greater step of faith, to not take all sorts of time thinking about it, praying about it, but to step out in faith and to do something that was outside of my comfort zone and to go with Miguel to Spain, where we had an incredible mission trip 
where we had the opportunity to share the gospel with many people from all over Europe, and then where we had the opportunity to go to a Billy Graham conference where we were equipped and trained further to share the gospel. Here's the principle. God wants to expose and expand your trust limits. Where have you set them? Where have you looked at God and said, I would do anything for you, God, but I'm not going to do that. He loves to call us to bigger and better steps of faith. Where he calls us to say, are you willing to trust me and the power of the gospel to provide whatever it is you need for this step of faith? It hit me this week, and it generally does when I'm coming up here to preach. Um, there's always that moment in the week where I kind of just want to run away and, uh, you know, come up with some excuse why I can't make it Sunday. Uh, maybe call Brian at his conference, wherever he's at and just say, Hey bro, I, I gotta go. I, I can't make it on Sunday. Something came up. And, uh, I mean, seriously, like when Brian Loritz asks you to preach, it's like you're the JV quarterback, uh, at a high school in Massachusetts and Bill Belichick calls you and he says, Hey, Tom Brady just went down. I'd like you to step in be his replacement. And so there's always that moment. Uh, and in fact, my eight-year-old kid even gets this, uh, a few weeks ago, we were driving home from the first sermon on Galatians and I, I just thought, I'm going to wait to see who says it first. And we're driving, we're turning onto the 101, and my wife says, that was the best sermon I have ever heard. And my eight-year-old son, without skipping a beat, says, Mom, that's kind of mean to Dad. (laughs) So you see why there's that moment where you just kind of want to run away. And so I was feeling that Thursday, maybe Friday morning, Friday morning, I thought, I just need to spend a little time in the word, not in this passage, but in the word. And I come to Isaiah 30, which says, in returning and rest will be your salvation in quietness and in trust will be your strength. And then it says, but you say, no, we will flee on a horse. (laughs) Well, good thing I didn't have a horse at home. I did think, well, maybe I could, um, you know get in an accident, not a good, not a bad one, but like a small fender bender on the way here this morning. Maybe I can speed on the 101, but then I thought, well, my 1998 Jeep doesn't even go over 65. So I'm not going to be able to do that. So, but here's the deal. God wants to expose and expand our trust limits. There are things we come to in life that strike fear into our hearts, like the angel did to Cornelius. And we just have to trust And we just have to take greater and greater steps of faith. And we have to be honest about saying, where is the limit of trust that I am putting on what God wants to do in my life? This is where Peter's at. This is a huge step of faith for Peter. And this is why. Look at chapter 10, verses 17 through 23. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry, For Simon's house stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So look at the power of the Holy Spirit to bring his gospel to Cornelius Not only has he now given a vision 
to Peter to show him why he needs to go. But he also shows up and says, rise and go without hesitation. So when we have that moment where we're questioning, should I take this step of faith? I think sometimes we need to remember these words of the Holy Spirit that says, rise and go without hesitation. Trust me. Trust the power of the gospel. Trust my power in your life to sustain you and give you the strength to do whatever it is I'm calling you to do. Rise and go without hesitation. And some of y'all, maybe there's something that God has been calling you to for years that you've repeatedly said no to. And you need to rise and go without hesitation. Or maybe today you need to rise and come to the altar and just say, Lord, I will. Lord, yes, to whatever it is he's calling you to. I want to ask this question too, though. Why does the Spirit speak this to Peter right now? Why in this moment? They're already at the door. All they have to do is ring the doorbell and Peter can go down. There's no doorbell, by the way. It's a gate in uh, first century. But they're at the door. They're knocking. Peter's already received the vision, but the Spirit says, rise and go. One last thing to compel Peter to obey. And I think the reason for that is because of the absolute incredible importance of this moment to the early church. This is a watershed moment in the early church. And I think the Spirit just said, we're not messing this one up. I'm going to show up as much as it takes. I'm going to provide this vision to Cornelius. I'm going to provide this vision to Peter. I'm going to speak to Peter. I'm going to tell him to go without hesitation while the guys are right there so that Peter had no choice but to obey. And the Holy Spirit came. And and that's what God ultimately does in our life, I think, too. But that's what he does here. The absolute power of the gospel pushes Peter to begin this radical step of faith to follow God's call. And so what's the radical step of faith? I think some of you may already know. But it's in chapter 10, verses 23 through 29. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So he's ready. This is an event. They're, They're there. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, listen to this. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So look what the Spirit of God does here. As the absolute first implication of the gospel, he eradicates the the first, first thing after the grace of the gospel appears. The Spirit of God eradicates prejudice and segregation from the hearts and lives of the church. He says, you know how unlawful it is for me, but God has shown me that I should not call any person 
common or unclean. And I think some of you need to hear that. Because just in the last month, you heard a statement that called different nations unclean. And you need to have that undone in your heart because that, as Brian talked about last week, is not in line with the truth of the gospel. If you think of someone as lesser than yourself, if you look down on someone because of their heritage, if you think of their homeland as an unclean place, it's not according to God's economy. It's not according to the truth of the gospel. We have this habit, and I think all of us are guilty of it, but, and I even didn't even think about it, and this may be evidence of just how I need to grow in this area, but the term third world has been something we've talked about for as long as I've known. And I got to thinking about that. Third world is not something that God sees those areas of the world as. They are not third in importance. They are not third in relevance. There may be a greater level of material poverty in those countries, but there's not necessarily less spiritual wealth in those countries. Material poverty does not equal spiritual poverty. In fact, spiritual wealth is often found in some of the poorest places of the world. If you've talked to anyone who's gone on a mission trip, if you've talked to anyone who's seen these places of the world that are commonly referred to as third world, they have been blessed beyond measure because they have seen the spiritual wealth, the faith of people who live in poverty. My father, before he died uh, in October, um, he'd always said as a pastor that when he got to retirement, that he would go to Africa, that he wanted to go and, and just use some of his extra time uh, to, to do some mission trips to Africa. And so he'd gone with his church twice prior to retirement. And after retirement, he was able in the, the, the last two summers... Um, So last summer and this summer, he was able to go to the country of Malawi. Malawi is the second poorest country on the face of the earth. And what my dad found there was absolute spiritual wealth. He, as a Lutheran pastor, goes and gets connected. I don't even know how this happens. It doesn't even make any sense. It's only what the Spirit of God can do. But a Lutheran pastor gets connected to a network of Pentecostal preachers in Malawi. It just does not compute. But there's this man in Malawi who years ago began going from town to town. He's a Pauline figure of Malawi. He plants churches in 152 different locations. And somehow my dad with another pastor got into an opportunity where he was able to go to Malawi for two summers in a row and run pastor's conferences for this network of Malawi Pentecostal pastors And 149 of the 152 pastors show up for two solid weeks to hear about the power of the gospel and how to effectively disciple and mentor their churches, how to erode what uh, a common teaching uh, of the prosperity gospel and a more accurate understanding of the true gospel of Jesus Christ that actually leads us to suffering and sacrifice. 
And my dad had that opportunity. And there was this video my mom showed me when I was back for his funeral in October. I wish I had it this morning. I don't. But it, it captures what I'm trying to share with you. The spiritual wealth that is there. But there is a video of my dad dancing in the midst of a bunch of Malawi pastors. And I'm, you probably never met my dad. He was here one time. But my dad was not a dancer. Let's just put it that way. Actually, if you want to mock me, invite me to a party and ask me to dance. Uh, My children, my wife mocks me for my dancing. But that is spiritual gold that my dad was able to go to a country and find that level of faith, that level of spiritual vitality. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What Peter is shown here is that when the gospel comes in power, one of the first things the gospel does is it erodes social segregation. It ought to. We haven't always done the best job of that, as we all know. But it ought to erode segregation, and it ought to erode the prejudice in our own heart. And so, as you heard last week, Peter still, after this, needed some confrontation from Paul on this matter, as Brian talked about last week. But, at the beginning, Peter was compelled to cross this barrier, reach into the life of a Gentile, show up, associate with him, and overcome that barrier. And that was a huge, huge step of faith for Peter. And one that had the Spirit not shown up, We may not be here today, but that is what the gospel does. It's exactly what Paul writes about in Ephesians 2. When Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, he talks about the power of the gospel and the power of grace. And then he instantly goes on to talk about how the power of the gospel then, according to the flesh, the sacrifice of Jesus' flesh, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. So that we are one as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of the power of the gospel. And this is the step of faith that Peter is called to take right here. So what step of faith is God calling each of you to today? It could be in those areas, in the areas of relationships. It could be in the areas of just obedience. It could be that God's calling you to do something. That he's saying, step out on faith and trust the power of the gospel. Trust my spirit to take this step of faith. And this is what Samuel Morris, back to his story, this is what he did in wanting to take the gospel back to his community of people. He had such a burning passion for that, that he took the risk to come to the United States, to show up in New York City, to find Stephen Merritt, to be sent to college, and to show up at Taylor University. But then the spirit threw a curveball, because after only one year at Taylor University, Samuel Morris caught fever in a harsh winter of Indiana, and he died at the age of 20 in 1893. But what he left was an inspiration to walk by faith. Listen to this. This kind of faith and power had begun to wane at Taylor as elsewhere. Samuel Morris electrified the entire university from the president down to the newest freshman. But the passing of Samuel Morris plunged the entire community into profound grief. 
God seemed no longer near at hand. In every heart was dumb wonderment at the mystery of divine providence in taking away a life so young and of such glorious promise of usefulness. Was all his faith to end in a cloud of doubt. After the first shock and grief and consternation had passed, the real significance of the life and mission of Samuel Morris began to dawn. Dr. Reed, the university's president, voiced this truth when he wrote, Samuel Morris was a divinely sent messenger of God to Taylor University. He thought he was coming over here to prepare himself for his mission to his people, but his coming was to prepare Taylor University for her mission to the whole world. Taylor got a vision of the world's need through him. It was no longer local. It was worldwide. Well, 101 years after Samuel Morris died, God sent me to Taylor University. And I found when I arrived as a freshman in 1994, 101 years later, that that spirit, that missional spirit still remained. And at Taylor, I got a radical vision for the Great Commission. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I got a vision for the Great Commission that was so compelling that the Lord asked me to take a step of faith into doing what I'm doing now. And he has repeatedly asked me to take greater and greater steps of faith. In my life, he's asked me to lead my wife and my children into greater and greater steps of faith. Moving here felt like the biggest one. Moving to the Bay Area in full-time ministry just felt so overwhelming and daunting. And yet God said, go. And so we were internally, uh, had a little consternation for a while, but we said, yes, we went. Because we felt clearly that God was calling. I got a radical vision for the power of the gospel to sustain me as I sought to share the good news with others. And this is where the spiritual power of the gospel is seen. Note, it's not just the supernatural power of visions. It is the spiritual power, the Holy Spirit power that shows up in the presentation of the gospel. As Paul wrote in Romans 1, chapter 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's what? It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes go and make disciples of all nations. It is the power of the Holy spirit for everyone who believes. And so Peter shows up to Cornelius and his household. He's overcome the barrier of segregation, the, the, the barriers of his own heart that say this is unlawful and yet the Spirit of God is calling him to go. And he shows up and he opens his mouth and he presents the gospel. And we're going to go home on this. This is what Peter says. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him And does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, 
how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. As he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness. Isaiah bears witness. Ezekiel bears witness. Hosea bears witness. As God called him to go and marry a prostitute and redeem her out of prostitution so that she could be one of God's people. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. That's the prophets bearing witness to this gospel. And the prophets bear witness that everyone, Peter says, who believes in him receives forgiveness of his sins through his name. Friends, that is the gospel. That is a powerful message that not only right now, if you're sitting there and you have not placed your faith, as it says, everyone who believes, it's the power that can transform your life radically from the inside out. But it's also the power that as you walk in life moves you towards taking greater and greater steps of faith. So what is it for you today? What step of faith is God asking you to take? Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would fall on us today. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would move in power because we know it is your power. It is the power of the Spirit that works through the gospel to draw people to you, to save people's souls, and to move us as those who have given our lives to you to deeper and deeper places of faith where we identify the limits we've placed on you, the the boundaries that we've said, well, we won't cross that. We can't cross that. We don't have the resources to cross that. And yet, here you go and you call us to greater and greater steps of faith. So God, move us today to whatever step of faith that you would have us take. Move us today to trust you fully and to understand and experience more fully the power of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name.